This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. What's going on in Chicago? What the hell is going on? Covering the big ideas. If you do not feel well, for God's sake, stay home. Save lives. The tough choices. Guacamole? No, I like guacamole. And the only three ways a Chicago alderman leaves the city council. The ballot box jury box or the pine box. Now, Bill Cameron. Barack Obama this week. The groundbreaking of the Obama Presidential Center in Jackson Park is coming this fall. June 4th, he talked about the center's mission and the state of politics these days at the Economic Club of Chicago with its president, Deborah Cafaro. In many ways, Chicago's never looked better. And I think that visitors, when I travel around Chicago, other than winter, uh, other than the weather, people love Chicago. But what I think has also happened in Chicago, um, and in this sense, maybe it's, it's um, experienced even more acutely what other cities have experienced, is an increasing economic divide that you know, can be traced back to racial segregation, but now often overlaps with economic segregation. Uh, and some of these phenomena are not unique to uh, urban areas, but in urban areas, you see it most acutely. Knowledge workers, you know, uh, businesses that are succeeding, succeed really well. Uh, folks who are relying on blue collar work, uh, uh, and don't have as much leverage, uh, they and the communities where they live fall further behind. The, the ladders of opportunity, uh, you know, the rungs on them uh, have become wider. Uh, again, this is a global phenomenon, but you see it in Chicago. Uh, and, uh, and as a consequence, I think that uh, so often the image of Chicago is being dictated by some of the bad news rather than all the great news. In particular, issues of crime, issues of uh, police community relations, uh, that sense of a racial slash economic divide uh, so that there are almost two cities. And it's one of the reasons why I think that uh, the Obama Presidential Center can be a, a powerful engine. It gives us an opportunity to uh, locate in a community and have a presence that signifies this is an important part of our city. And yes. if we get this right, and if we open these doors to opportunity for the residents of the South Side and, you know, by extension, uh, other parts of the city uh, that sometimes feel left behind, um, if young people there start imagining, envisioning that they're a part of this broader community and they count, um, that I think can help overcome, be one component in overcoming what I would argue is the one thing that's holding Chicago back. Yes. It is a world-class city and is viewed as such, but yes. I think that is the, uh, the, the millstone when it comes to how businesses, how visitors, others think about Chicago. It's that, that concern that once you get outside the Loop or the North Side or Wrigleyville, uh, or Lincoln Park, then now you're in uncharted territory. And, and obviously, those of us who live on the South Side and you know, know what 
uh, the, the incredible businesses and institutions and, and communities that are there uh, know sometimes are, are false stereotypes, but you know, unfortunately, you know, there are communities that have experienced extraordinary trouble uh, and difficulty yes. for decades since I first arrived back in 1985. And, and uh, we, we all have to make an effort to bridge those gaps if we want Chicago to be everything it can be. Yes, just briefly, um, were you surprised at how business leaders really stepped up this year in being open, active, and vocal about key issues? And what role do you think our business community here in Chicago has to play in addressing some of these challenges in Chicago? You know, I, I, I was encouraged. Um, you know, when you look at last summer uh, in the wake of uh, uh, the murder of George Floyd uh, and, and the activism that it inspired, uh, particularly among young people of all races, uh, who said this is not the America we, uh, uh, you know, we expect and we want to do better. Uh, I was encouraged that uh, the business community recognized they had a role to play. Uh, and there wasn't just a knee-jerk reaction of, let's tamp that down. But in, instead, there was some, uh, some reflection and, and uh, you know, uh, people asking tough questions about how can we be responsive. Um, and, and, and in that sense, I'm encouraged. I think that the key for businesses now is to, to think, how, how do we move beyond either uh, philanthropy alone? Philanthropy is important, supporting uh, organizations that are giving kids more opportunities, that are you know, helping uh, rebuild neighborhoods. Uh, all that stuff's important. So, so in no way do I want to diminish the importance of, of uh, the checkbook and, and uh, philanthropic efforts by companies. Um, I think uh, some of the symbolic gestures that have been made uh, are serious and, and significant. Um, you know, when, when companies make a decision that, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're troubled by uh, restrictive voting legislation, uh, you know, companies have the ability to get the attention of elected officials in ways that sometimes uh, breaks through the usual partis partisan lines. Um, but I think that the, the, the place where some companies have done better, all companies have to uh, do more is thinking about, all right, how do we use our uh, resources, yes. our business practices yes. to help remake our economy? Yes. So for example, uh, companies that are taking seriously diversifying their supply chain and saying, you know, how, how many African-American or Latino businesses are we contracting with and can we do better? And if there's nobody in that particular space, uh, is there a way for us to partner with a smaller business that maybe can't take on all of the work that we need for our various functions, but uh, can take on a small part and then we can help train up so that over time they build capacity. What are we doing 
when it comes to our own internal hiring practices. Yes. Are we doing enough yes. to diversify our workforce? And if it turns out that uh, we are having trouble finding highly qualified black or brown candidates, what are we doing to expand the pool by yes. you know, creating training programs and apprenticeship programs and you know, insisting you know, that, that we push harder uh, on those issues. Uh, I think that's the next phase, and, and we've seen some businesses do that more effectively than others. What they usually discover, by the way, is that by doing so, they don't just ingratiate themselves or uh, get a checkbox on being politically correct. It actually makes their businesses function better. Absolutely. Uh, and they're finding talent that they wouldn't have otherwise found. Um, and, you know, uh, by the way, when it comes to that, it, those internal practices, that uh, has to be not just at the uh, entry level, but also at the yes. at the highest levels of, of yes. a company. I mean, what does your boards look like? What do your yes. executives look like? And, yes. and obviously, Deborah, you won't mind me saying this applies to how we think about women, not just minority uh, candidates uh, yes. for these uh, for these jobs. As president, sometimes people ask me what was some of the most important lessons I learned? What were some of the most yes. important lessons I learned as president? In making decisions, one of the things that was most valuable to me, whether it was in the Situation Room or the Cabinet Room, whether it was on domestic policy or foreign policy, was having a range of perspectives yes. so that we were looking at a problem, not in a groupthink way, but from a bunch of different directions. And that allowed us to catch mistakes, anticipate problems, execute more effectively, communicate more effectively. Uh, and I think what is true, uh, what was true for, for me is, is true for uh, corporate decision making as well. We're listening to Barack Obama talk about his presidential center in Jackson Park and some of the issues of the day. The government needs to work. And part of the Obama presidential center is to teach leaders to solve problems for, for people who need them. So in terms of the filibuster, in terms of uh, these voting rights matters, what do we need to do to make the government work, in your opinion, and protect our, our democracy? Yeah, I, I, I would say that, look, uh, there are some institutional changes that we need just to uh, reinvigorate our democracy and give people confidence that uh, our government can function effectively. Uh, and you've mentioned a couple of them. I, I, before getting to the filibuster, uh, uh, political gerrymandering is something that has increased polarization. Because if, if parties in power are able to draw the maps to maximize uh, the likelihood that they win a particular seat, um, so that only 10% of House congressional districts are competitive. Well, that means that for the vast majority of members of Congress, they never have to try to appeal to the other side. All they're worrying about is the most extreme uh, uh, opponents coming from uh, their left or right flanks. And so that increases polarization. The filibuster, as you mentioned, is something that stymied our ability to respond even more robustly to the financial crisis. Uh, 
you know, and uh, was a source of extraordinary frustration for me. Uh, uh, so far, Joe Biden has not had to wrestle with that directly yet because the American Rescue Plan that he, he and his administration were able to put forward that was obviously necessary to respond to the pandemic um, was done through what's called reconciliation. It's sort of a loophole that gets around uh, the filibuster just once. But the fact of the matter is, is that you, you know, it's a limited tool. And so actions on climate change or on immigration or a whole host of other issues, you can't use that tool. Those are bottled up because of the filibuster. That's not something that was in the Constitution. Uh, there was never a discussion by our founders about a supermajority requirement. Uh, it has become a mechanism for the minority to block action on anything uh, and further feeds a sense of cynicism around government. So uh, I am a believer that that has to be significantly modified. And then finally, uh, as you point out, uh, we are alone among major democracies up until recently. You're now starting to see some problems, uh, but not uh, among our major allies like uh, you know, you know, Canada or the United Kingdom or Japan, in actively discouraging people from voting uh, and doing it systematically. And there's obviously a historical precedent to that that has to do with uh, uh, race and, and, and Jim Crow. Um, but that has continued to this day, and uh, that, that's something that we just can't uh, abide if we believe in the Constitution and the documents that were written. Uh, if you are a citizen of this country, your voice is supposed to be heard, and it is not the task of uh, those of us who have the privilege of being elected and serving to then decide you know what, let's exclude some people from being able to exercise their franchise or make it harder for some than for others to give us a, a, a short-term political advantage. And that's what's being done in a pretty unabashed, unembarrassed way. Uh, and there is legislation pending to potentially address that, but uh, whether it gets through, ironically, will be determined in part by whether or not we can uh, modify the filibuster. When you ask the public about some of the proposed measures to reform and make voting easier, simpler, clearer, and fairer. Uh, you know, the provisions that are in the bill uh, have widespread popularity. Uh, so, you know, we're going to have to break through this, this uh, log jam in order to make the whole system work better. And, and look, the good news, I think, for those of uh, your, your members who are listening who you know, sometimes are skeptical about government regulation or taxation or it, uh, the, the thing I experienced with respect to businesses, a lot of times they just want clarity. They, they want clarity in terms of what are the rules, you know, uh, you know what, what, what's the playing field and then, we, and then we'll play and we'll compete. And the, the, but they also want the government to be able to take clear action when it comes to transportation or cybersecurity or a whole bunch of things on which their businesses depend. Um, we're, we're better off if we've got two parties who are competing fairly based on facts and reason uh, as opposed to 
opinion and partisanship, and, uh, and that's what we can achieve. So do you think that the voting bills are the single most important priority as you look at the threats to democracy? I, I think they are in this country right now. As I said, I think long-term giving people confidence that government action can help folks uh, at, who are having a tougher time in this modern economy uh, fulfill their basic hopes and dreams about supporting a family and making sure their kids are, uh, are doing well. Uh, I think that's obviously just as important. There's one last element of this, Deborah, that I haven't spoken about that I have to uh, touch on, and that has to do with the role of uh, our media and how we get news, because I think this has changed profoundly. Um, you know, when I was growing up, most of the people uh, who are over 50 uh, obviously had the same experience. You had three news stations. And, you know, you, you could choose Walter Brink uh, or you know, David Brinkley or Walter Cronkite or, uh, you know, I forget some of the other, John Chancellor, uh, right? But that's where people got their news. You had local news. You had uh, the, the ABC, NBC, CBS affiliates. You had PBS. Everybody operated under some basic journalistic standards about fact-checking and the separation of opinion from reporting. Uh, and uh, you had you know, major newspapers like the Tribune or the Sun-Times in Chicago. Uh, uh, other, every city had a newspaper. Every town had a newspaper that more or less abided by these journalistic standards. And so we all had a certain set of facts that we could agree to. And we might interpret those facts and say, well, I'm taking a conservative position. You know, I think this is what uh, will actually grow the economy, not that. And some people might take a more liberal position on, on this. Uh, but, but at least we were uh, in a common conversation using common language based on a certain common set of assumptions. And that is no longer true. Um, and, and part of what we witnessed on January 6th was the culmination of a media uh, ecosystem that has now been turbocharged by social media in which people just make stuff up. And you can get a third to half of the country believing in stuff that is completely made up. All right? So there was no evidence. <laughs> this was repeatedly shown that there had been any irregularities, uh, any significant irregularities with respect to the election. And yet, to this day, we now have uh, a majority of Republicans believing there was. There was uh, partly because it was propagated by the person who was occupying the White House. Um, but it, it, it's not just that, right? The, the misinformation around vaccines has in, in, and, and, and how we respond to COVID probably slowed and impeded our ability to deal uh, with the pandemic. Uh, climate change. We can have a debate about what the best way to deal with climate change is, but the fact that we still have large uh, portions of the population that believe climate change is overstated or is a hoax based on what they receive from news stations and Facebook you know, posts and um, 
you know, talk radio, that's made democracy uh, much more difficult. And so part of the thing I've been trying to think about is, is how do we, um, how do we ad adapt, you know, uh, to, to this new media environment in a way that can at least restore some sense that, uh, as, as uh, Senator Moynihan of New York once said, uh, all, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but we're not entitled to our own facts. Um, democracy can't work if we can't agree on uh, you know, uh, the facts in front of us and then have a civil debate about uh, uh, how do we interpret those facts and what should we do uh, in terms of taking uh, uh, some sort of common action. Barack Obama at the Economic Club of Chicago talking about the state of politics. Up next, the roundtable with Lynn Sweet, Ray Long, Greg Hines, and Heather Sharon. This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. A look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. Now, Bill Cameron. Time for the roundtable where we just get to tell the truth with Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. Hey, Lynn. Hi, everyone. Ray Long of the Tribune. Hey, Ray. Hey, hey, Bill. Greg Hines of Cranes. Hey, Greg. Sir. And Heather Sharon of WTTW. Hey, Heather. Hey, Bill. Well, we have a second lawsuit, Greg, on the uh, remap of the state legislative districts. And this one looks like it might have more traction. Tell us about it. Well, this one, Bill, comes from the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, uh, which has been a constant presence in remap legal disputes in the state over the last uh, three or four decades. Um, uh, they filed suit, and it's 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 separate, it's different, but it's, uh, it's similar at the same time to the one the Republicans filed earlier in the week. Um, uh, their principal argument is that in using uh, not in not waiting for the census data to come in in the fall, the Democrats didn't want to do that because that doing so would let the Republicans back in the game, and instead using American Community Survey data. Uh, that uh, that uh, they came up with unreliable maps that violate constitutional uh, protections of, of one person, one vote, uh, equal protection. Um, so they've asked the court to uh, to, to uh, essentially throw out this map, and uh, at least until we know what the census says, um, and at a minimum put the whole thing on a halt, on, on hold, and uh, quite potentially result in, in redrawing it. Uh, that is not the message that uh, certainly that uh, Speaker Welch and uh, and uh, President Harmon and Governor Pritzker wanted to receive, because it's, cause, uh, unlike the Republicans, where it's easy to yell, throw stones at and say, well, there's, you know, it's just the other party. Of course, they want to block our map. Uh, uh, is seems to be a little less partisan and more interested in protecting rights of Latinos. So it presents a little bit of a political problem. I'll let the lawyers argue about, well, how much of a legal problem it is. Yeah, that's what lawyers are for. But uh, reporters can uh, make educated guesses, Heather. Do you think this one has a better chance? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, as Greg said, it sort of centers on the Democrats' use of the American census survey data as opposed to census data itself. 
And that is really going to be up to a judge to decide whether that passes muster. I think we also are going to be in a little bit of a conundrum because it really goes right to the heart of the separation of powers. You know, the legislature has the sole right to create these masks, and it may be that a judge is reluctant to get involved in that. Um, so there are a couple of hurdles this suit, as well as the one filed by the Republican leadership in the House and the Senate, will have to overcome. But um, things are very much up in the air as we speak. Ray, now the Democrats, when they uh, put the map, to map together in secret, claimed that they were rigorous on voting rights rules, do you think uh, this lawsuit has a chance? Well, I do, because I think Illinois uh, baked into its state constitution uh, the uh, idea that you have to make sure that you're following the uh, need for diversity in this state. And uh, that was one way that they built in to make sure that uh, Chinatown, for example, had uh, one representative or that their uh, their uh, various population wouldn't get diluted by being in several different districts. They also made that point uh, last time in the remapping 10 years ago to uh, make a single district that contained most, if not all, of Chinatown, for example. And so I believe that, that uh, this one could have more traction, plus the idea that Hispanic population has been growing in Chicago, and uh, the black population in Chicago has been going down. And so there was a feeling that uh, the effort in, in Springfield saved the number of seats that the African-Americans had, but did not uh, fully address the full strength and growth of the Hispanic population in Illinois. So given that, given that there have been uh, efforts over the years by Hispanic groups to improve uh, representation, including back in the city council, back when Harold Washington was there, um, there is a, a greater chance that this one could have better traction. You know, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, just a year or so ago, uh, even widened out the ability to uh, give states more and more power than they had even when Madigan was making the maps. So there is uh, this leeway, but the Illinois uh, Constitution may pull it back into a way that could give this group a better chance. Lynn, what's your take on this? Well, what is interesting is whether in or if the goal of Moldoff is to create more Hispanic majority districts, one of the things that they need is to have concentrated populations of Hispanics. Now, I've been told that yet two things could be true at the same time. Hispanic population growth in Illinois has grown in 10 years, but it hasn't necessarily grown in in the same places. So if the Hispanic population is scattered throughout the area, it still will be harder to create more majority Hispanic districts, no matter what a court may rule. Uh, that's an issue also for the congressional map that will be drawn later in the year using actual uh, census data, because there is some talk of creating a second Hispanic district. But again, because of scattered populations, it will be next to impossible. I agree with all you guys, but I, I must share with you that I've been in federal court 
over the decades over these remap issues. And my lasting impression is that federal judges, either in district court or courts of appeal, are very reluctant to intervene in map cases, even when the arguments for the challenge do seem logical. But we'll uh, wait and see. One one uh, tweak on that, though, Bill. Uh, this apparently will not go to uh, one judge. Uh, at least that's the request. It would go to a three-judge panel. That's what uh, election lawyers tell me. Um, you have a now. You now have, uh, thanks to Donald Trump, you have a more conservative judiciary. So I think a three-judge panel. Uh, your odds, if you're a political conservative, of getting a good draw uh, that might favor such kind of map and want to sock it to the Democrats go up. So add that to the add that into the mix too. Absolutely, good point. Hey, I want to get your impressions of the way Mayor Letwood on Friday celebrated Phase Five reopening. It was a real pep rally press conference there on the Chicago River, where the North Branch and the South Branch meet and. I thought she was in campaign mode, celebrating the many achievements of the city during the pandemic, and in a sense, giving away free money in the form of $250 gift cards. Heather, what was your impression? Um, I was there Friday morning, and it was really a pep rally. Um, Some staffer whom I didn't recognize uh, tried to hand me a Chicago flag to wave. Uh, I declined. (laughs) And uh, the podium was festooned with not just Mayor Lightfoot's picture, but the picture of Dr. Allison Arwadi, who, of course, is the commissioner of the Department of Public Health. And she has got to be the most famous director of the Chicago Department of Public Health in the city's illustrious history. And, um, you know, it, it was interesting how they tried to sort of celebrate and encourage people to go back to spending money, to go back to work, to go back to their lives, while also still feeling the need to remind people that just about half of the city has had one dose of the vaccine, um, fewer still are fully vaccinated, um, and uh, so the pandemic is very much still with us, even though the city is fully reopened at this point. And just like this pandemic has been, you know, from March 2020, I think it's important to note that the people who are getting sickest and the people who are dying are Black Chicagoans who are the least vaccinated in the city. And again, most likely to be hospitalized. And then um, that will eventually turn into death based on the uh, grim pattern that we've seen. So, a lot of optimism, but I think it's worth um, sort of tempering our excitement with knowledge that there's uh, still a long way to go. Okay. Now, Governor Pritzker Ray was quite different. He did not hold anything like a pep rally. He just issued a good-feeling video with a little music in the background saying that Illinois is certainly the most resilient state. Why would he be so low-key when his reelection is closer than Lightfoot's? Well, you don't have to take questions if you uh, send out a video and you avoid the uh, potential foot and mouth that you could uh, have or being pinned down on. Like there are a lot of questions still, um, although the numbers are certainly better overall. There are still uh, questions about whether uh, 52, 53, 54 percent of the adult population is enough to have vaccinated when they talk in the upper 60s about having half uh, or uh, uh, 
adult, rather, if they talk about the upper 60 percentages that the adults have at least one shot done. And uh, that is still a concern to uh, people who study these things. And I've even had a friend uh, who had one vaccination die in between, who he was exposed to another person and he had his first vaccination. He died. Um, this, uh, you know, I've had five people I've known who have died from COVID. So it's oh still something to be concerned about. And it's still much, it's much better out there. There's no doubt about it. And uh, there are a lot of numbers back up the idea that you uh, can get out and do things, but you still have to be careful. Lynn, do you have an impression about the way these two uh, rolled out their celebrations or not on uh, phase five coming out on Friday? Well, I would think it's it's just easier for uh, Lightfoot to pick a spot in Chicago. I guess it sounds like she was at the Wolf, Wolf Point and uh, do a big media splash uh, because it's so focused. And I don't know what else Pritzker has on this Friday, if he's going away or what, but uh, you, you celebrate a reopening uh, in multiple ways. He also has to deal with the fact that, you know, in, in the state of Illinois, there are people that are a whole segment of people downstate who are highly critical of how he handled openings, closings, et cetera. Uh, in Chicago, it was quite different. So maybe because of the different uh, recent histories and COVID politics, they chose different ways to mark the uh, opening. Greg, what's your take on this? I think uh, Lynn uh, began to get to the truth of it, uh, that uh, the politics of COVID are a little bit different in Chicago than they are downstate. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, governor's decision to uh, shut down much of the state has been much more controversial uh, south of I-80 uh, and really south of Springfield. Uh, not that people up here loved uh, everything that Mayor Whitefoot did, but I think there was more willingness to, uh, to, to go in that direction because uh, it most of the reaction for good or bad seemed to fall largely on partisan lines. Democrats backed this kind of stuff and Republicans didn't. Um, um, that having been said, I, I completely agree with that uh, this was uh, this is a little bit of a, uh, of a, a pep rally, although Heather uh, was the skunk at the party, actually asked about a real news subject, which is which the Chicago School Board, but uh, Bill, that's going to be rammed down the mayor's throat next week, but uh, good for you, Heather. Um, uh, uh, but even in Chicago, so there's there's banana peels here. Uh, I did a story yesterday that despite this reopening, the Chicago Park District, for some unknown reason, has decided to keep up all the drinking fountains in the parks. They say they've received guidance from somebody that it's not healthy. So it's 95 degrees out. People are falling over because of the heat. Uh, but uh, and the state says there is no such guidance in face five. Any any drinking fountain can reopen, but uh, but uh, they turn off the water. So <laughs> scratch your head. Hey, Ray, as we're uh, discussing everything right now, there's a breaking story here on Friday afternoon about a Chicago cop charged in the insurrection. What's this all about? The details are coming out that uh, this police officer was arrested here on charges of breaching the U.S. Capitol on January 6th during the the uh, insurrection uh, right there on the Capitol. Uh, The name is Carol Chiswick, 
Um, I may have mispronounced that a, a bit, but again, it's just breaking. It came out of uh, the U.S. District Court in Washington. There's five misdemeanor counts. They include restricted uh, entering a restricted building, disrupting government business, and order disorderly conduct on capital grounds with the intent to impede the congressional proceedings that were going on. As you know, they were doing the official, really perfunctory count of the electoral votes in, in the Senate at the time. And so um, this doesn't say exactly what he did, but it's just one more uh, example of uh, Chicago is involved in everything. And it's also a question uh, raised. This uh, uh, person has been with the Chicago cops since 2018. It's just a question of whether everybody is paying attention to to uh, what their uh, police are doing at all times. Boy, Heather, another black mark on Chicago, isn't it? It is, and based on the bond hearing that's going on right now, my colleague Matt Masterson is covering it for us at WCTW. Apparently, Chiswick was wearing a Chicago Police Department branded hoodie when he breached the Capitol and entered the office of an unnamed U.S. senator. Uh, so that is truly, truly mind-boggling. Greg, what's your impression of this one? You know, it's a big department. There's uh, well over 10,000 officers, I believe, uh, uh, and they're not all going to be angels, uh, but uh, it would be nice for a change to be uh, reporting news about about uh, about policeman hailed as hero. Uh, 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 good stuff happens. They seem to land up in controversy very much, um, and this won't help. Lynn, this is out on your beat. What do you think of this? Well, he's not the first law enforcement person or person uh, who holds an elected office that was arrested. I think more than 400 people have been arrested so far. I don't know if this uh, Chicago officer is in custody or made bond or what the uh, his his personal status is right now. But when you had so many people there uh, who listened to the call of President Trump to come to Washington on January 6th, uh, you you do just keep in mind one thing, uh, and we'll find out more you know as we as this case goes. I'm most interested in learning what and why did this officer want to achieve in Washington. Sometimes people are giving interviews. There is one person accused uh, who was on CNN on Friday morning who uh, thought he was just answering the call of Donald Trump and then got caught up in something. That was unplanned. The fact that he wore Chicago police uh, uh, you know, signature stuff on it, he may say, show that I had no intent of doing anything wrong because I had nothing to hide because, as, you know, because it probably made it real easy to identify him. That's Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. Thanks to her. Also to Ray Long of the Tribune, Greg Hines of Cranes, and Heather Sharon of WTTW. Up next, Kim Gordon. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. GirlCon returns at the end of the month. The conference started four years ago by two Chicago high school students. It encourages girls and non-binary students to pursue science, technology, engineering, and math, also known as STEM careers, as well as closing the gender gap in those fields. Joining me today is Sneha Mohan, recent high school graduate and senior vice president of the conference. Sneha, welcome to Connected to Chicago. Hi, thank you so much. It's so great to be here. 
Well, congratulations on your high school graduation and you're, you're staying busy this summer. Tell us a little bit about GirlCon and how it got started. Yeah, of course. So GirlCon was started in 2018 by two of our co-founders, Molly and Kyla. And this was because they noticed the gender gap and lack of female representation in their coding classes. So they thought that this was the best way to go about fixing that. And of course, like you said, GirlCon is an annual conference this year we are virtual, but in the past we've been in person at Google Chicago. And it's a conference that is four days long where we work to inspire our peers and empower even more young women to pursue STEM. And obviously you are pursuing a STEM career or getting ready to go to college to pursue one as well. I mean, what made you want to be part of this conference? Yes, of course. So I am pursuing computer science this fall. and. Being a part of GirlCon is actually something that inspired me to look more into that field because not only just like working with speakers, but also exploring through the breakout sessions. I actually started out as an attendee at GirlCon in 2019 because my friend encouraged me to go. And this year I've worked my way up to senior VP. So um, again, like going to those sessions, working with these speakers, you really get to see how technology plays in every single field. And I like to explore those intersections with, especially in space and AI, are fields that I'm really interested in. So, again, yeah, GirlCon and, like, seeing those intersections is something that we really try to highlight through the conference in our breakout sessions because they're formatted as tech plus passion. So that passion can be so many different things, healthcare, art, law, the list goes on. But, yeah, we really try to see how it can delve deeper into this niche of how technology combines with other fields. And it sounds like it would be a great conference for somebody who's on the fence, too. Like, is that the path I want to take? Yeah, of course. The great thing about GirlCon is that it's not just for people who know they want to pursue STEM. Even if it's something that you're interested in, like if you're interested in the plus field of the tech plus, we still really encourage everyone to join because you can see how technology is embedded in every single field. And in addition to our technology aspect, we also have professional development sessions and inspiring keynote speakers from many different fields. For example, one of our keynote speakers this year is Hope Goins, who is from the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Security. And she's obviously working in government, but she is still a really inspirational speaker. And um, we love to share the stories of women and role models from various different fields, not just in technology. And so how is this conference different than in years past? Obviously, it's going to be virtual. And has the pandemic helped or hurt? Get your message out. Of course. So obviously, there are like hurdles and benefits to running a virtual conference. Um, one of the benefits that we've realized, actually, our 2020 conference was also virtual. And what we realized last year was by having it in a virtual format, we were able to reach even more attendees from across the globe. Again, like I said before, it used to be based in Chicago, and we had around 250 attendees from the Chicago area, which was really amazing. But in our virtual format, we were able to reach more than 750 people from 32 different countries, and we hope to expand on that even more um, this year in our virtual conference. That's One of amazing. the drawbacks is, yeah, yeah. Go um, ahead. What, what are some of the drawbacks? Yeah, I was just going to say it's a little bit difficult um, having it interactive, which is something we really tried to highlight and fix with this year's conference through our one-on-one -on -one sessions. So we're having one-on-one -on -one mock interviews and also resume reviews to make it feel like 
you know, we're really together in this, and it's not just like you're sitting and watching a lecture. Additionally, we have interactive components in our breakout sessions that our amazing speakers are leading. Um, for example, we have like cahoots and typing lots of things in the chat. There's Q&A sections. So we're really trying to make it as engaging as possible for our attendees and not making it seem like it's just another lecture that you're watching on Zoom. And I know GirlCon is going to be taking place virtually between June 27th and June 30th. Is it still too late for people to sign up if they're interested? Of course it's not. Um, just feel free to check out our website, girlconchicago.org. It has all the information you need, our session bios, registration links. Our registration does close June 25th at 11.59 p.m., but popular sessions might fill up faster, so we highly encourage everyone who's interested to check it out as soon as possible. Additionally, you can follow us on GirlConTech on all our social media platforms, um, mainly Instagram, but also Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and newly TikTok. Okay, cool. Very nice. So just uh, before we close, just tell me a little bit, some of the highlights, some of the things that you're looking forward to seeing at this year's GirlCon. Yeah, again, like we said, we're really hoping to reach even more attendees from across the world. Our goal this year is 1,000, so we're hoping to exceed that even further. And we're also really looking forward to the personalized sessions and having more community building at GirlCon 2021. So again, it's not just about you learning the technical aspects of coding, but also making it feel like you have a network of people behind you to support you in your journey. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it and look forward to hearing more about the conference. Thank you so much. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Matt Mellon for production assistance. I'm Bill Cameron, WLS News. Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.